listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Pastor Andy Squires. How many of you had a terrible Christmas? Raise your hand. All right. Only, only my son-in-law. All right. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let's see. Are, are Ethan and Margaret in here? Oh, Ethan's here. Is Margaret here, Ethan? Well, she skipped church, didn't she? Guys, Ethan and Margaret are getting married this week. Yeah. So you may be invited to the wedding. You may not be. You know, I've been not invited to the wedding before. It's okay. It doesn't mean they don't love you. But they will still take cash from you, even if you're not invited to the wedding. So if you want to see Ethan after church and put a $100 bill in his hand, you know, honeymoons are not inexpensive. So you could bless these young people for, uh, for starting out their career together as husband and wife. And, uh, it, you know, it's a good thing to get married, isn't it? You know, the Bible says he who finds a, a wife finds a good thing. And I know that's true. Amy and I have been going on 26 years now, and we are so thankful for it to be with each other. Well, um, I'm preaching today. John Mark was asking me earlier about what I was preaching on, and I, I said, man, I don't really know yet, but I always have this like underlying sense of dread in everything that I do. So like I'm a songwriter I'm a, I'm, I, sometimes I preach, there's always this like underlying sense of dread in all of my songs and all of my sermons. I write a sermon, I go, dang, it sounds like Tom Waits or Nick Drake wrote this thing, you know? And, um, those are sad musicians, by the way, for, for those of you guys who don't know those people. But, but, uh, sometimes I feel like I have this fountain of sorrow that's in my heart all the time. And it's just, it's just, my heart is pumping and the sorrow is always coming out. But I always feel this over, overwhelming sense of joy at the same time. I can't quite explain it. I, I have two Spotify playlists. One's called Andy Squire's Fountain of Sorrow and one's called Andy Squire's Fountain of Joy. Look them up if you want to be sad or happy. So, or you can like go back and forth between the two for like a mediocre day, you know. But, but anyways, I... I had this thing happen to me this week where I had just been overwhelmed with a sense of dread. And I, I realized that that wasn't me talking to myself or my mind talking to myself. It was all these other voices out there in the universe, you know, getting ugly with me around the holidays. And I would put my head down on my pillow at night and I would, I would start to feel like this impending doom. And, and, uh, you know, if you've ever had a sense of impending doom, there's really not much you can do with that. Sometimes you can watch TV and that'll make it, you, you be distracted from it, but it remains when you wake up from your television show or whatever. You know, you can, you can, uh, you can cope with your impending sense of doom with alcohol. And, you know, that, that works for a while, you know, then you have to move on to bigger and better drugs, you know. It's why people get on drugs, because they have this impending sense of doom. They've got this underlying sense of dread that's working on them all of the time. And uh, 
I was going crazy. I was like, why am I dealing with this? I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be having this overwhelming sense of impending doom working on me, especially at Christmas. And, you know, isn't it like the Lord, what the enemy means to take you out, the Lord takes it and turns it on its head. And what the devil meant for your destruction, the Lord takes and uses for your victory. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm really going to give you a testimony And we're going to look at a few scriptures together and hopefully encourage you today because I really believe this. What John Mark was talking about today is so true. Man, could you feel this sense of the spirit this morning and the songs and the things that John Mark was saying where there's this. um, Well, there's a long game that the Lord is playing and sometimes we judge him by the short game, but he's playing the long game. And Christian people need to learn that they're playing the long game with the Lord. And if you've walked with him for any length of time, you're knowing that you cannot assess what he's doing by looking at the short game. You have to be made aware of the long game. So, so the Bible is, is, it's a story of promise making and promise keeping. And God is both the promise maker and the promise keeper. God's whole story is promises made and promises kept. In fact, all of our specific and distinctive Christian hope hinges upon God keeping his promises to you and me. All right, this is why you go to church. It's because what you're getting at church is different than what you're getting out there in the world. We need to be re-reminded of this hope, amen? But the nature of promises is that there is an inherent tension built into them. There always seems to be a long distance between the promise given and the promise kept. And in the words of Tom Petty, waiting is the hardest part. All right. But here's a promise we don't have to wait for. In John chapter 16, we find Jesus is getting ready to die and he's preparing his disciples for life without him. He's he's at his impending death and he says this to them, but he's really saying this to us all. He says, I have spoken all of these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have trouble, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. You know that scripture, hopefully. But this is difficult for us to swallow because it seems like if Jesus had overcome the world like he said he had, then all the trouble would stop. We so often think of peacefulness as being connected to a life with no trouble. But Jesus connects peace not to a life without trouble, but to himself. So if you have a life of trouble and you've assessed, I can't have any peace with all this trouble. Jesus is saying no. In the world, you will have trouble. In me, you will have peace. But maybe this is part of the tension of living with a promise. When you think about it, only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. Have you ever thought about that before? The Bible says that it's impossible to please God without faith. If faith were easy, if faith was something that everybody could do all of the time, it wouldn't be faith, would it? Only in an environment where faith is hard to have, can you have faith? A life with no trouble 
is a life that doesn't need any resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Trouble comes in many forms. Some people seem to not have a lot of trouble. Some people seem to have more than their share. Some of us think that trouble is a sign that God is not for us. Sometimes that is what trouble is. We have made choices in our pride to go our own way. And in our pride, God resists us. And when you think about it, God resisting us is really a blessing. But some trouble is just the kind that happens to us because we were born into a broken world and there is no way to completely avoid trouble. But sometimes trouble comes to us because we are in God's story. So it's Christmas. Got to talk about Christmas stuff. The preacher gets up and says Christmassy things. You turn them off because you already know the story. The story's boring and lame. You could say it back to the preacher. We're going to talk about Christmas anyways. We're going to talk about Zachariah, who was a priest in the house of God. Zachariah was an old man married to an old woman. And these old people had no children. And they were supposed to have children. At this point, they were supposed to have grandchildren. He was, a, he was a priest in the house of the Lord. And Elizabeth was from the house of Aaron. She was the daughter of a priest. And the Bible says this about Zechariah and Aaron. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. The Bible says that they were blameless. When we see them in the gospel of Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. They are good people. They are faithful people. They went to church. They prayed. They followed God. They were focused on him. They were focused on knowing his ways and following his ways. But they couldn't have children. They were barren. And here's the thing about barrenness. In the Old Testament, if you were barren, there was a reason for it. It was because there was some sin in your life. There was something happening between you and God. There was some block blockage between you and God. There was something you were doing that was affecting you not being able to have children. Barrenness didn't happen for no reason. So here's this priest in the house of the Lord married to a daughter of a priest. And before God, they were blameless and yet they were barren. These were people who had trouble that came upon them for no reason of their creation. They had trouble in their life because they were in God's story, but they didn't know it. So they had a reproach upon them. It was shameful to not be able to have children. It was the kind of trouble that was so confusing because if you knew your Bible and they did know their Bible, you knew that being faithful to God came with a promise. If you were faithful to God, he would bless you with many children. It's over and over and over in the Old Testament. You can see it time and time again. So here are these people who had lived their entire adult lives holding the tension of a promise that they never thought would come true. Can you imagine living your whole life in impotency? 
Can you imagine giving your entire life over to something that you thought was one thing and it has proven to be entirely different than you hoped? Can you imagine your life looking to be the exact opposite of the scripture's description, except you were totally faithful with the, to the prescriptions that scripture told you to follow? Imagine that. Imagine the entire life of obeying God and him not responding to you in the way that he said he would. You might be mystified. It might eventually become hard for you to believe what God has ever said to you. So one day this priest Zechariah is in the temple and he's burning incense before the Lord. And this angel shows up, this big angel named Gabriel, and he appears to him. And of course, Zechariah is very afraid. But the angel says this, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Hopefully, you know the story, but Zechariah does not believe what the angel has said to him. He asks what any rational person would have asked. How can this be? I am old and my wife is advanced in age. So can we just for a second, before we throw Zechariah under the bus of faithlessness, just empathize with him for just a second. I see so much of myself in Zechariah. How does one cope? with a lifetime of unfulfilled hope. How does one do that? I mean, he didn't have Netflix to binge on. I mean, he may have had access to a bunch of wine, but according to the scriptures, he wasn't living as a drunkard. He wasn't using any of the mechanisms around him to inebriate himself to cope with a lifetime worth of disappointment. So can we give this guy a little bit of rope here and say, man, we get it. The angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby and you can't believe it. I get it. It seems to me like Zachariah was doing what I so often do. I go through the motions of my faith on the outside, but I manage my heart on the inside. I manage my expectations. I manage my hope. I stop actively expecting God to actually do something in my life. I don't become an atheist. I just act like one. Isn't this real? When I'm in the middle of the mystery of my suffering, I sometimes find it difficult to actively expect God to make his promises come to pass. I leave my prayers behind. I set my hope up on a shelf where I can admire it as a trophy of my former zealousness. And I start to put less and less stock in hope. It's not that I become bitter. I just manage my expectations. I used to have great expectations, and now I have theoretical expectations. I think that's what John Mark was saying about the difference between feeling and the mind. It's like, yeah, we can fall into either of those things, can't we? But man, putting your practice, putting your faith into practice, that's like the brass tacks of this whole thing. I used to talk to God. Now he is just a topic of conversation. 
I used to listen for God to speak to me. Now I have 10 podcasts that give me interesting information about God. We're not up for any more hope built on hype. We have no more energy to jump on any more spiritual bandwagons. We wish the preacher would just settle down. Sometimes hope can be the hardest thing for a person to take. Because the longer a hope is deferred, the longer we have to carry the heart sickness that comes with that deferred hope. The hardest part of Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is that their trouble wasn't of their own making. It was the mysterious kind. We know the end result of their story, but they did not. And when God finally showed up, Zechariah was slow to believe. Isn't that funny? God's slow to do something, but we get busted because we're slow to believe. (laughs) Some of y'all might have to take that up with Jesus. I don't know. This is how it is for us. Sometimes an angel of the Lord comes to us and tells us your prayer has been heard. But we have been so formed by unbelief and hopelessness that we cannot even imagine our hope being fulfilled any longer. And we are scandalized and even offended by the very idea of our hopes coming true. When we have been formed by the hopelessness of the world, we are offended when the word of hope comes to us. When we have been formed by the faithlessness in the world, we are offended when faith arises in our midst. Thankfully, God intervenes. And like he did to Zechariah, he does so to us. He strikes our unbelief with muteness. Did you get that? Like God did to Zechariah, he does to us. He strikes our unbelief with muteness. He, He silences our hopelessness. He meets our unbelief with his righteous judgment, and he brings us into alignment with his kingdom. Maybe you thought God was judging Zechariah harshly by taking away his ability to speak, but really God was acting in mercy. He was accelerating Zechariah from the low-grade fever of despair to the ecstasy of a hope fulfilled. He and Elizabeth's reproach and shame of childlessness was being taken away. So here's the thing. Their hope fulfilled took away their trouble. But now I want to look at somebody whose hope fulfilled was the entryway into a lifetime worth of trouble. Let's look at Mary for a little bit. Sometimes hope fulfilled doesn't cure your trouble. It brings trouble. Sometimes the promise fulfilled does not resolve the mystery. It brings more mystery. Mary was a teenage girl when the angel Gabriel appeared to her and told her the news that she would bear a son who would be the savior of the world. So imagine receiving that kind of word. An angel shows up and tells you, that the child you are going to bear will be the king of a kingdom that will never end. And that he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord will give him the throne of David 
and he will reign in the house of God forever. Not to say anything about how he would be conceived. You were a person who received that kind of information from an angel who sat at the right hand or the left hand or somewhere near the throne of God. And somebody shows up and says, here's what God says about you. You're going to give birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Savior, not only of Israel, but the entire world. Your first thought might be, things are about to get so much better for me than I had ever hoped. Unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary didn't have to wait very long for that word of the Lord to come to pass. But nothing about this promise fulfilled made her life easier. So much difficulty came with her into her life because of this fulfilled promise. So imagine the difficulties. Imagine the reproach that came upon Mary. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they lost the reproach. They lost the shame because of this hope fulfilled Mary had this hope and this promise fulfilled and all she got was a reproach and shame. Imagine, can you imagine God bringing this beast of an angel to give you all this information and then leaves the rest of the world in total darkness and ignorance? I mean, could he not have at least told the people in the village, this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit? And not by premarital sex. That would have made Mary's life so much easier. But there's something about God where he doesn't seem that interested in making our lives easier. He was clearly comfortable with taking this little 13-year-old girl. The Bible says the Spirit of God overshadowed her impregnated her and didn't tell anybody else what the heck was going on, except for eventually her husband through a supernatural dream. But if I'm Mary, I'm thinking to myself, this could have been handled way better. (laughs) So the reproach that came from being an unwed mother, how do you explain to people that you've been impregnated by the Holy spirit? Good luck with that. If you've been told by God that your son is going to be the long expected savior of your people, how do you reconcile his early death and his death on a cross? No less. It's so interesting to read the account of Mary because for as clear as the message from angel Gabriel was, it was really an invitation from God to Mary to enter into an incredible life of trust. Some of the promises that we've received individually, corporately, specifically to our life, but also just to the life of the church, to the life of the world. These promises are really invitations into a life of trust, not into a life of ease. There were so many questions that must have arisen in her mind. When you hear the word king, you imagine a conqueror with power, not a healing evangelist who eventually gets crucified. But we see in Mary 
a person who wills herself to submit to things that are beyond her understanding. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, if you're going to be somebody that submits themselves under the word of God to the spirit of God, you are going to be a person who lives mainly beyond what you currently understand. Did you know there's not a theologian and intellect alive on the face of the planet who has this figured out enough to have all the questions answered? There are people who claim that they have figured it out. They have, there are people who have claimed that they have deconstructed the faith far enough to make it simpler and easier for everybody to grab a hold of and get on board so that now that we can clearly follow Jesus. That is a lie. It's not true. Jesus is mostly interested in leading us places way past the things that we can understand. That's why he never connects peace with a lack of trouble in your life. He always connects peace to himself. Because he's not interested in you living a life of ease. He's interested in you living a life of faith in him, through him, with him, and for him. We see in Mary a person who wills herself to submit to things that are beyond her understanding. I have a hard time giving myself over to things I don't understand. Mary was a person who accepted, accepted not having all the answers. Do you know you have to get to a point in your life where you are comfortable with not having all the answers? That's kind of the conversation that we're having with Jesus, isn't it? It's like continual. It's the thing that we have to keep in front of our lives hourly, if not daily. Jesus, I don't know what you're doing exactly, but I am ready to follow you past the things that I understand. Some of us are camped out in the why camp. We're waiting for the answer to the why before we move. And God's saying, you're never going to find out the why. You just have to move. There's not even that much enjoyment in figuring the why out. All of the passion, all of the power, all of the joy, all of the fantastic energy that comes from following Jesus is not at the Y campsite. It's way past that. It's over in the land of peace that passes understanding. We are so anchored to the why. We're so anchored to our intellects. We're so anchored to the things that we are desperate to figure out so that we can clearly follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, listen, you just got to come on over here with me. This really is the way it is when we walk with God. Understanding is not always going to be part of our story, but peace that passes understanding can be. It seems like in order to access that peace, we have to leave behind our requirement for understanding. Mary was a person who accepted that hardship is part of reality. I would, I would say this. Any type of gospel presentation that tries to disconnect a vibrant, robust life of following Jesus from trouble is not an accurate description of reality, and you should run away from it. You will have so much more, um, I don't know what you'll have. You'll have something more. If you just figure out that life is not easy, Mary was a person who accepted her life of ill ease. 
There was no comfort for her anywhere. We have all kinds of comfort. I've said this before, but like I'm mad at God when my cable gets shut off. I'm acting like things are bad for me and I'm being persecuted when somebody cuts me off on the freeway, right? These are the things that we're being formed by in this modern American life. And we have to remind ourselves that our lack of comfort, our lack of convenience are not God being put out with us. That's called living in the world. You can file that under life in general. You know, every time somebody gets sick, you don't have to ask what sin is in the camp. Every time somebody gets something, I don't know, like cancer or whatever, like God forbid we rebuke cancer in Jesus name, you know, but it happens sometimes. You know what? You don't have to ask yourself, why did God let this happen? That's called living life on planet earth. Sometimes these things happen. We don't have to know the why. We just have to know who our victory is in. We don't have to be afraid of impending death. That's the inevitable. It's coming for everybody. I don't care how much you work out. It's coming for you. You could jog 10 miles a day. It's coming for you. You have to remember this. You have to keep this before your eyes. Because guess what? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am your victory. I am the one who can save you from this. That is our hope. That is our ultimate hope. That is the thing we are. Our stake is in the ground, isn't it? Mary was a person who accepted that hardship is a part of reality. Can you imagine the actual hardship that Mary lived through? If an angel of God shows up at my house and delivers me a message saying that I am blessed and highly favored. And my first thought is goodbye trouble. Goodbye hardship. I am blessed and highly favored. How many times you're at the grocery store, somebody asks the lady behind you how they're doing. They're saying, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Man, I wish I could say that. I'm always stressed. I always have this like internal low-grade anxiety going on inside of me. Every time somebody asks, how you doing? I'm like, do you really want to know? I mean, like, things are hard, lady. Things are not good. I mean, John Mark said it earlier. Nobody's getting rich working at this church, you know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We are very blessed. But you know what I mean? Like, you got bills to pay. You got bills that aren't being paid. You got kids that you're running around to basketball practice and track meet. And, you know, had an argument with your husband. You know, got to hit him with a two by four once just to get his attention. Get hit him with a two by four again so he'll understand. (laughs) But for Mary, the word of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the hope of the Lord brought her into a life of hardship. And from beginning to end, she experienced and witnessed the life of her son with hardly any clear answers as to why what was happening was happening. She had to actively trust God that he knew what he was doing. Man, I'm the kind of person that if I have like some kind of spiritual victory, I think that should last me for like at least 12 months. 
Like, oh, yeah, I got this figured out. Problem solved, challenge accepted and conquered. I am coasting for the rest of the year. How many of us know that's not how life works, right? You got one challenge figured out and it's on to the next, baby. Am I right? This, this thing is, this keeps going, right? And God has set this whole thing up so that you and I will be leaning on him, actively trusting him for our lives. That's the beauty of this whole thing is we don't even have to be scared when things get hard. She had to actively trust that God knew what he was doing. I mean, if I'm Mary, as soon as I'm pregnant with the son of God, my expectation would be that God would let everyone in the neighborhood in on the secret. If I'm Mary and my baby is born in a stable, I might be thinking to myself, maybe I didn't hear God correctly when the angel said that he would be the king of kings. You cannot assess your current situation up against God's story because God's got this story for your life, for our lives, for the life of the body of Christ. You know, sometimes I was sitting in, in worship this morning, and this, this, is, this is no, I don't mean to offend the worship team. I do not mean this. But I said this thing in my mind today. Man, things used to be so much better. Man, I was in renewal 15 years ago. You didn't even need a good drummer for the Lord to show up. I mean, I've been in times of refreshing where the Lord seemed to move that you thought it was never going to end. He's like, oh, this is God's plan for planet Earth. We're here now. This is never going away. Guess what? It went away. That was not God's ultimate plan for planet Earth. It was God's plan for a moment. But you have to live in the tension of getting to experience all that glory at one point in your life and then not experiencing that glory in the next part of your life. You get to find Jesus in that hardship. You know what the hardest thing about being a Christian who's been a part of a move of God is? Someday God's not going to move in that way. And you're going to be a Christian who's not in that move of God anymore. And guess what? You have to learn how to follow Jesus in that not move of God. You get to follow and trust Jesus apart from the glory cloud that reigns in the room. This is the way it works. Zechariah and Elizabeth had a lifetime of holding the promise intention. If I'm Mary, I'm still living in Nazareth with my carpenter husband and my carpenter son. All he's doing is learning how to be a carpenter. I might be wondering if God is really going to do what he said he's going to do. But some way, somehow Mary understood that hardship was part of the package and she accepted that. You know, acceptance will get us so far. Get us so far. She accepted that, but I resist that. I get mad about that. I think God isn't around when things are getting hard. So my family and I had a really good Christmas holiday. And I mentioned this to you before, but I'm going to say it again. But for some reason, I had been dealing with this underlying feeling of dread. And I finally confessed to Amy how much fear I was walking around in. I think we just get so inundated with words from all other sources that we can quickly come under the influences of voices that are at their core, their voices of hopelessness. So that's why we have to be careful about what we are ingesting. Are we keeping the word of the Lord before us at all times? 
I know I don't always do that. So this anxiety that I get occasionally, it's rooted in my fear of dying. It's something that I'm confronted with when I am not rooted in actively trusting in the word of the Lord over my life. And part of getting free from that sin is repentance. So I've been, I've been repenting of my unbelief. And I've been asking the Lord to help my unbelief. And I've been saying, Lord, teach me to hope again. Teach me again to believe. You see, here's the thing. This moment right here, this is a good moment. This moment that we're sitting in here is a gift from God. But this moment is not all we're living for. Okay, Christians are different, all right? You know how people say that phrase, you gotta live for the moment, okay? You will not find that in any of the confessions of the church. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. It's not in the Nicene Creed. Do you know where all the hope lies for the Christian church? It's somewhere in the future. That's, I mean, honestly, if you didn't have any hope for like an hour from now or a week from now, what, what would you be doing with your life? Like you would just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? That's, that's, some people do that. It's not a good way to live. But you have this intrinsic, internal, genetic hope that's on the inside of you that is prophetically looking at this culmination, this future hope. We've been celebrating Advent. We've been celebrating the first coming of the man, Jesus Christ. But as Christian believers, we also have a future hope. We're looking, actively waiting for the second coming of Christ. Now, I don't have to get into all of the like theologies of what that looks like. No matter what your disposition is theologically there, as a Christian, your hope is in the return of this coming king and the resurrection of our bodies. Did you know that your final hope is not dying and going to heaven? It is the bodily resurrection of that body that's sitting right there in that chair. We do not have a disembodied hope. You are a person that has a mind, a spirit, and a body. And Jesus is going to resurrect your body in the same way that he's going to resurrect your mind and heart. It's not Star Wars where you die and you're a hologram for the rest of your existence. It's not the force. That's not our hope. So the thing is, this moment is good, but we are a people who believe in God's promised future. This is the anchor of our hope. We believe that God's working toward the restoration of all things. We are a people of faith, and we are actively trusting God to bring that about. Hope is not wishing for something to happen. Hope is tied to a promise of God. We're not getting together in this room and like, like randomly hoping that good things are going to happen. We put out good vibes and then good things follow us. No, our hope is tied to the promises that God himself has made to you and me. Jesus said he has overcome the world. He is renewing all things and he is coming back quickly. This is what our hope is tied to. Hope doesn't mean simply enduring it means waiting in expectation. So there's part of your life that can't be like, okay, I'm living life on planet earth. And when, when, you know, when the end of all things happens, then, 
then things will be great. No, you must develop an active expectation of the move of God in your life for you specifically for this church and for the the church around the world. This is our hope. Our expectation is God wants to do something in the earth. Amen. Hope trusts God for the near future and the distant future. So here's the thing. Do you know right now this morning that you have exercised hope and faith based on a promise that we find in his word? Did you know that you've all already done it today? You're, you're all faith filled Christians. All right. Let me tell you about this. Okay. The book of James says this, draw near to God in what he will draw near to you. So here today, we came singing praise, sitting underneath his word, because we believe that our drawing near to our creator creates a reciprocal kingdom experience between us and him. Did you know we're not just only singing songs or listening to the word? We're actually interacting with the person who made us. The Holy Spirit is in this room. He's doing his work. He's slapping us in the back of the head saying, pay attention to the preacher because he's saying really good things right now. But more than that, he is transforming us into his image. He actually is transforming us into something so incredible and beautiful. So do you know another promise from God's word that literally obliterates anxiety and worry from our lives if we start to believe it? Okay, just be honest for one second. Anybody struggle with worry and anxiety around the holidays? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. The rest of you are super saints and you're amazing. And we're coming to your conference next week. But for the rest of us, okay. Okay, I feel so stupid saying this right now. What I'm about to say to you. This is like those Captain Obvious commercials, right? I'm telling you, I'm giving you the key to getting free of worry and anxiety for the rest of your life. But when I say the words that I'm about to say, I feel apologetic because you could literally open up the Bible and read these words. And it's like, okay, been there, done that. What next, Jesus? But truly, if we get this, if we really believe this, listen, Jesus says, why do you worry about food and clothes? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You know that verse. We all know it, don't we? We know it so well that we don't believe it anymore. It's become a verse on a sign hanging in the Hobby Lobby. But it's really packed with power and hope that sets us free from the bondage of the lust of things. So we've got to get this into our bones, church. We've got to get this deep into our bones It is God's desire for us to live in triumph over fear and dread and anxiety and worry. There is a reality of resurrection power deep inside of our bones already. But we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that? Are we actively giving our lives to God and trusting him with it? Living in hope is always having that resurrection before our eyes and in our minds and in our hearts. So that's why when you need to have that stuff before yourself, because you're going to see the news, you're going to hear the radio, you're going to read the internet, newspaper, whatever. And you're going to be inundated with things that are going to be stealing your hope. You have to have the hope of Christ, the hope of the resurrection before you always. So we are a people who are anchored in the man, Christ Jesus. 
We don't have our hope in a politician. We don't have our hope in a good economy. We don't have our hope in religious celebrities. We don't have our hope in theological persuasions. We have our hope in the man, Christ Jesus. And I'm going to conclude with this. Romans chapter 8. Paul the apostle is just a little while from having his head cut off. Like he's, he's said enough incendiary things that the government has finally had enough of him. And they're going to shut him up once and for all. And he knew it was coming. Paul was not a man who lived a comfortable life. He suffered greatly. But he writes this thing in, in, in Romans 8, which for me is kind of like the pinnacle of, of, of our life in Christ. And it goes like this. This is, this is the scandalizing power of hope this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weakness for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also called, whom he called, these also justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. Tap your neighbor on the shoulder and say, listen up. Here we go. This is it, everybody. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, 
shall famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come on. So be it. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.